Weezy Original. I'm Larry Galco. I'm Roger Berkowitz, and this is Name Brands, the podcast about the story behind your favorite brands. Joining us now on Name Brands is Marianne Harrison, CEO of John Hancock, the U.S. Division of Manulife Financial Corporation. Marianne oversees all of John Hancock, and John Hancock, as you may know, is one of the largest life insurers in the U.S. and one of the fastest-growing asset managers. All told, John Hancock covers and supports some 10 million people in the U.S. with instruments ranging from insurance to annuities to investments to even 401ks. Prior to assuming her position here in the U.S., Marianne was was president and CEO of Manulife's Canadian division. Marianne, welcome to Name Brands. And, you know, it's funny because in this show, we talk about name brands. And, you know, it, you know certainly Hancock is an important Massachusetts name, but it's also a, a name that resonates nationally, and I'm assuming internationally uh, as well. And how many name brands can you think of where you, you, you mention the name and it's all of a sudden your signature as well. I mean, that transcends that. I must get that at least six times a week. I don't know about you, Larry. Yeah. So you're coming down from Canada. Does that d- d- does that resonate up there as well? Do they say John Hancock for, for signatures? or? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, if you uh, are driving down the Gardner in Toronto, you can see Manulife slash John Hancock. Uh, so it is very prominent in uh, in Canada as well. So, so I have to think because we, we talk about name brands and, and John was John Hancock ever in insurance as an individual, and was he ever participating in the original company in some fashion? And because I'm curious how the name got you know developed for the insurance company, and then of course the uh, all the other things that you do today. That's a really good question and one I probably should know the answer to, but unfortunately I don't because Manulife acquired John Hancock in 2004, so they were already a well-established company. By I'm, that I'm just curious then. if someone's still getting royalties on the John <laughs> Hancock name. That's Not, no, no royalties. <laughs> so, Marion, you know, you were going to be, I guess, a lifelong accountant. And then I'm just curious, what was it that pivoted you to get involved in financial services in what people have termed really a very male-dominated industry? How did that come about, the whole thinking process? Yeah, it's actually quite interesting because at one point in my career, I said I would never go into insurance. So it is actually very surprising that I'm, that I'm here. Um, I, as you said, I was an accountant and I grew up in the financial services industry, but on the banking side. So I was heavily involved on the, on the banking side and um, actually had left the um, public accounting to join one of my clients actually at the time. Um, so I was in the, on the banking side when I got the call to uh, talk to somebody from Manulife. And when I sat down with the CEO, I was very intrigued with what they had to offer. And so um, I decided to make the switch. Like I said, I never thought that I would get into insurance, but it's uh, it's been really interesting. I've had a great career. Yeah. But it's interesting, like in Boston, besides yourself, you have Abby Johnson, you have James Simons, who I know. But you know, in the, in the healthcare business and like hospitals and colleges, there's a lot of women who are at the helm, but in financial services, there aren't. How, how, did, how did you- how do you get there? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting. If you asked me 20 years ago, would I ever be the CEO of John Hancock? I would say, no way. Like, <laughs> just, it wasn't something that I was aspiring to. Yeah. And I think it's just the way that things went for me. It all kind of aligned up. Um, it is a very male dominated industry. Absolutely. But you know, my attitude is you put your best foot forward and you do the best that you can and good things will happen. And that's certainly what happened from my perspective. You know, I was, as I said, I was in public 
accounting. And after doing it for so many years, I said, I'd love to do something different. I didn't know what it was that I really wanted to do, but I wanted a different opportunity. And, uh, the CEO at the time of John Hancock asked if I'd be interested in running a business. I'd never done that before, so I thought it would be a great experience. So I said I would love to. So took the opportunity to move my family down here between 2008 and 2013. And that was really my first foray outside of the uh, public accounting Now was when the whole financial crisis was unfolding Absol- too, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It was quite the time to, to join. And of course, I joined a business with called Long-Term Care. And at the time when I joined it, they said, oh, it's a nice, easy business. It's got a steady stream of oh, earnings yeah. <laughs> and no problems associated with it. And of course, the crisis came and everything fell apart. Um, so it was quite an interesting career. <laughs> As I've learned over time, women bring different things to the boardroom. And it's taken me a long time and being in business for a long time. But today, my uh, chief operating officer and our uh, CFO are women. And I see different things that they bring to the table that men just don't have. So maybe you could articulate a little bit what what, what I'm experiencing, uh, because I think it's more important today to have more women sitting in head positions. Absolutely. When you bring men and women together, I think you get a very diverse thinking that goes on in it. And it's really good. From a woman's perspective, I think that we are a bit more... um, thoughtful, take our time a little bit more so in terms of, of the thinking process and and sometimes can, you know, don't jump the gun and can be more um, looking at both sides of the of this, of the argument that you might have. So I just think it's just a different perspective. Um, women have a, a lot to offer. And I think diversity of, uh, of thinking is something that's pretty critical as well. One of the uh, things just to change the subject for a minute that's fascinating me and I, Larry and I talk about marketing a lot and to want many insurance companies you know insurance as an instrument as an example isn't the sexiest thing to be selling banking isn't (laughs) the sexiest thing but we see today some really clever marketing advertising whether it be Geico uh, State Farm and 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 they're sort of doing it with humor Um, John Hancock has always been affiliated and associated with sports Uh, You know, you can't think of the Boston Marathon without really connecting John Hancock to it. And to some degree, the Olympics as well has always been a a strong part. Why sports as opposed to other aspects? I'm just curious. Well, the sports side actually ties in very well with the behavioral insurance that we've really been focusing on. It's really about living healthier lives. And, you know, when you think about life insurance, people are so focused on what it provides to your dependence when you leave versus mm. focusing on the life side of it. And that's why we actually implemented a, a new offering called Vitality, which is around behavioral insurance. And it's really encouraging people to live long, healthy lives, getting more active. And so the link to the marathon and to a lot of these sporting activities is really about getting out there, being active and, and making sure that you're making a difference in your own life while, while you're around. Yeah. Well, you know, just like Roger said, piggyback what Roger said, the whole category has always been, you know, I think we can all say in the room here, a very sleepy, mundane, you know, years ago, if you want to buy life insurance, you want 10-year life, 20-year life, term, you know, whatever it might be, whatever. And I want to talk about more, you mentioned the vitality, because, you know, we hear this word game-changer a lot, Roger, as, you know, it's, it's thrown around every which way. And, but you've really, I believe, created a real game-changer because you've taken 
this topic or the category called life insurance, you've added fun to it, but you've made it more of health and wellness versus like buying a product for when you're going to die versus like being healthier and more wellness. And I've read about the, the Apple phones and the apps and the Fitbits and so forth. Share with us Vitality. How did this concept come together under your helm? And also, what kind of results are you seeing? Because you're creating really now, I believe, more of a sense of community and more interaction with your, with your customers more than ever before. I read a little while ago that years ago, the average customer would maybe talk to you twice a year, and now they're talking to you 22 times a month. So just show us, because I think it's a real game changer. Yeah, and, and after that, I want to get into death. But go ahead. <laughs> Roger, Roger always pricks up the conversation. <laughs> um, you were absolutely right. Um, prior to Vitality, we would really touch our customers twice a year. One, to give them a privacy notice, and one, to give them a bill. Not great <laughs> engagements with your customers. And now, actually, you said 22 times. It's actually over 45 times a month we're engaging with our customers. Really? And it's the gentle nudges and terms of mm. trying to encourage them to exercise more. So the program is set up that we encourage people to wear a wearable device. Um, it's their choice whether they want to share data with us or not, but they will get points for exercising and doing uh, healthy, healthy things. They also get points for healthy diet, um, for meditation, uh, sleeping well. So it's really trying to encourage people to live a healthy life. And as a result of that, you can get rewards, so we have rewards programs attached to it, and you can get discounts on your life insurance. And that's where it really is a differentiator for us. There is not another insurance company where they actually tie it right into the policy like that, and you can provide discounts to people on their insurance premiums. Are any, are any other insurance companies trying to mimic what you're doing? I mean, you know, in branding, the first in the mind wins. You know, many times it's not what you do, it's what you say. So you're doing it and you're saying it, but are you finding others that are trying to replicate or compete or basically you own this category and now it's, it's really yours to just to keep propelling it, right? Yeah, it's certainly been ours for the last, we started this in 2015, um, certainly been ours the last four years really. Uh, I, th I know that there are a number of competitors that are looking to do something similar. And there are things out in the marketplace around wellness, but they really are separated. Um, to tie it into the insurance program, you need years of history to be able to really do this effectively. There's a lot of actuarial science that goes so, in this. So what are some of the key metrics you're looking at that have shown and demonstrated that fatality is really driving remarkable results? Well, if I look at since 2015, since we've been here, our customers are taking two times as many steps as the average American, and they've logged over three million activities. So that could be wow. swimming, biking, hiking, running, um, any kind of activity like that. So we're really seeing that interaction is happening and that it is encouraging people. It's amazing how we as individuals get so motivated with rewards as well. And the fact that it has reward points, it really encourages people to get out. So, so, so if Larry decides not to exercise, does his premium go up? No, no. Whew. Well, that, that, that would be a way of incentivizing people as well. You yeah. got to go up both ways. But you, you won't get the discount. So you, you well, you'll start with right. the dis. You can start with the discount the first year, but you have to maintain that. And if you don't maintain it, then it goes back to the regular premium. Have you noticed anything significant between demographics? Like I know, for example, like millennials today are a very big market, and a lot of different brands. Roger's brand, my brand, so forth. But in your brand, you know, you have people today inside of your control who are getting married later, having children later, 
And once they do get married, and those are two like infection points to get you have more customers, then when they do get married and have kids, well, they have school debt, other expenses, and they may say, you know, life insurance is not a priority. So I'm just curious to know demographically, how is Vitality working? And what can you do to engage the millennials when some of that tide is against you? So in terms of demographics, when we first started, we thought we would get the younger generation and that you might be more prone to getting more healthier people. Interestingly enough, the demographics have been all over the map. Yeah. You know, the 55-year-olds that are quite interested in living a longer, healthier life That's Roger well. and I. Yeah. So well, the, one of us anyway. <laughs> I'm sorry you had to make your older Roger. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It really cuts across all demographics. We also have partnered with the American Diabetes Association. And one of the reasons why we did that is because we wanted people to recognize that this could really help somebody who's a diabetic control their diabetes. The more exercise you do, the better off you will be. So it's not just for healthy people. It's also for people that are struggling a little bit with their health. And they're actually the ones will get the highest discount off their policy because they pay the higher premiums. So one of the things that I had mentioned before was, uh, and I, I wasn't really being that facetious, but dying. Uh, and, and so people are living longer now, right? And so I have to, th- so I'm, I'm curious, is it, you're, you know, oversee a, 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 a number of insurance arms, one of which is, is, is certainly life insurance. Is that good or bad when people are living longer? It's certainly good on the life insurance side, and that's why we say that our behavioral insurance is a real, real shared value because we get value because obviously you're not paying your premiums. So from a shareholder perspective, you're not paying the premiums out until a longer time out, and then you're taking in their premiums. So, so one of the things that, let's say someone has a life insurance policy and they're, they sort of assume that they're going to live to be 95, 96, 97 and they're starting to blow past that. So then there's no payout, right? And the, the insurance company, I, well, I'm guessing, say, it's saves later. money. So it's I guess later. the good news is people live longer and they don't die, but, 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 but they don't have the benefit of all the annuities that have gone in there. No, and, and on the life insurance side, we're actually not paying it out until they pass away. Um, so, but, it's, but if they if they but let's say they live to be ninety nine, and the insurance was to cover them to ninety five, it's sort of <laughs> okay. <laughs> that that's the hidden secret. Okay, all right. Um, uh, speaking of living longer, um, one of the things that and and Larry used to call me and ask me about this all the time. And and one of the reasons that you're here, I said, you know, let me have Marianne on because she can answer this. Your background is in long-term health care insurance. You you have a background in that. I have a yeah. I did five years okay. actually of so long-term now, care. Okay, so now we're hearing more and more about long-term health care. So one thing is, can you explain what it is? A and then B. Um, is it too late for Larry? <laughs> for those for those listening who don't see us, <laughs> I don't have a beard and a cane. <laughs> but 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 I'm curious because this is really the yeah. heating up now in, in mm. talks about uh, long term health care and people are debating whether it's worth it, whether they should get it or not. And you hear nightmare stories where people don't have it mm. and, and they should. So your your perspective would be greatly appreciated. Certainly. So long term care insurance is actually covering people for 
activities of daily living. So if you can't bathe yourself, you can't eat, you can't dress, you can't transfer, long-term care is to help you cover those kinds of basic things. So it's not medical related as such. It really is activity-based. And so if you're having troubles, usually it's three out of five that you uh, aren't able to do and you have to bring somebody in. Long-term care insurance will cover you for that. So it is an opportunity to have the insurance company pay that. Now, there's all kinds of different policies out there, and there's all kinds of benefits you can get. Um, So it could be for a period of time. It could be up to a certain dollar value. But it's to help an individual um, to pay for those costs when they run into any issues as they get older. Let's say you have a relative that comes to you. They're 40 years old, and they don't have any insurance or a minimal amount. What would your advice be to them at 40 years old? What should they be thinking about and what would you advise? And and again, I'm saying that as a relative because you might be taking a little bit more of an interest in their well-being. Right. And I guess it would say everybody's individual circumstances makes that Mm -hmm. a different answer. So if you have no dependents versus having four children, as an example, like I have, you know, from my perspective, the life insurance is very important because Mm -hmm. when I pass away, I want to make sure that the kids are covered. So Mm -hmm. certainly as I had four young kids, it was important to me to make sure that I had life insurance because I needed to be able to replace my income if anything should happen. So that's certainly uh, one thing. Now, if you have no children, then you might not feel the same way. There might not be that need Mm -hmm. in terms of the insurance Mm -hmm. side. If you're getting close to retirement and if you don't necessarily have any pension plans, you might look into an annuity because you want some kind of a a payout uh, Mm. when you start to think about retirement. So how does that work? If someone was thinking about it now, how would that work? So there's multiple different kinds of annuities you can buy. A variable annuity, which which it can vary in terms of the amounts that you're getting paid out. A fixed annuity where you can put down a sum today and get a fixed stream of income coming out of that in the in the future. So there's a number of different ways, but the whole idea behind it is giving you a stream of income mm-hmm. as you move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that you may want if you don't have sure. a pension plan. If you have concerns about your health, if you don't have anyone to look after you, again, it, it's all individualistic mm-hmm. in terms of what you have uh, accessible. But if you have a big family and you won't need, you have lots of people to look after you versus somebody who has nobody and might need someone to look after them as they get elderly and can't do these activities of daily living, they may be interested in long-term care insurance. So it really depends on the individual circumstances, mm-hmm. but there are a number of different avenues to help people, uh, whether it's on the insurance side or on the on the wealth side as well. You've created a whole different you know, messaging platform with, I guess, Vitality and some other products. And I'm just thinking that, you know, in the insurance business, for years, traditionally, there are insurance companies and a lot of them, because, you know, you live in a very crowded marketplace. And then you have these insurance agents that are representatives to a lot of different insurance companies, maybe some just solely to John Hancock, whatever. How do you ensure, as a leader, that the message and the embracing and the interaction that you want that consumer to have is carried out, let's say, in that local level versus from John Hancock themselves, and, and or are you looking to become more consumer-facing and going direct to the consumer, and eventually we're going to see these insurance agents, they'll still be around, but maybe not with John Hancock. So two questions, and I'll yeah. start with a, taking a look at the advisor as an example. So when you when you do look at the advisor, a lot of times they're looking across all the insurance companies that are there. And so having products that look similar 
is helpful for them because they can show their customer multiple uh, different providers that are there. So when you introduce something like behavioral insurance, it's very different. Mm. And so we've had to spend a lot of time talking to the producers and making sure that they understand that product offering. And some people love it. And they've got their wearable device, their Fitbit or their Apple Watch and their active users. Others are less comfortable with it Mm. because they just don't understand it as much. And it's another conversation you have to have with the customer. So I'd say from a producer perspective, it's a combination. So we spent a lot of time educating producers to make sure that they're comfortable having that conversation. Because you're right, we're not we're not there having that. Another conversation is positive because more interaction with the customer, right? There's a number of advisors that look at it exactly that way. Because I have this really exciting, cool thing I can talk to you about that I can't talk to you about. Something new and different versus same old, same old. Right. So I think from an advisor perspective, it varies in terms of the producers that are there. But we're getting a lot of producers that really uh, love the offering and find it as as a good differentiator to talk to their customers about. Um, In terms of your questions around, are we going to do more customer facing? We actually have started direct to consumer, but it is a different market that we're going after because the advisors really are dealing much more with, I'll say the mass affluent and the high net worth. And so what we're trying to do on the direct to consumer is have a much more simplistic product offering for them and try and get at the mass market where we're really not competing today. So it isn't a conflict with the advisors. And, you know, in terms of the advisors, my view is they're going to be around for a long time. Sure. You know? I really think that the way they work and how they work may is going to change and evolve over time, but I think they're going to be here because I do think that people get a lot of comfort having a third-party advisor giving mm-hmm. them some advice in terms of what they should mm-hmm. do because these are really big, tough financial decisions for people. Yeah, I was just wondering if this you know advisor, would you be more consumer-facing, whether they're going to be threatened saying, gee, are we going to be cut, cut out of the picture? No, so we've actually been doing it now for a number of months. Um, we uh, actually launched our direct-to-consumer offering at the beginning of 2018, and there hasn't been an issue because we are great. going after different de- demographics. Great. That's great. Warren Buffett um, recently came out um, with some you know, thoughts he, when he, as he has his uh, uh, annual meeting, and he owns a number of uh, insurance companies in his portfolio. And one of the things that I, I thought was, it took me back a little bit, but I, I assume if I was in the insurance business, I'd have to think about it. And, and that is he's dreading the big one whatever that means. And it's sort of the big catastrophe, whether it comes from uh, climate change or whatever. So I'm curious, do you, do insurance company heads sit around with their actuaries and, and say, okay, you know, maybe this next year? And, and sort of, I, I'm just curious as sort of what goes on that you could share behind the scenes. And then what kinds of things do you have in place that might mitigate the exposure to what you're doing? Yes, we're always talking from a risk perspective mm-hmm. in terms of what are the risks that we face today. And, and some of them you really don't know. Like you say, uh, climate change isn't something that's necessarily impacting us on the life insurance side. But there's lots of things. When AIDS was first coming out, there mm-hmm. are a lot of things that you look at and you try and assess that risk. And I think the actuary spend a lot of time assessing how big the problem could be and, and making sure that we're covered from a risk perspective. So we're always looking out sort of into the future to tr- try and understand what might be coming at us. Um, But you don't always know. And so I think a lot of uh, what the actuaries do is really estimate based on where they think things are are going and and doing the best that that we can on that perspective. So it really is just trying to make sure that the risks are covered, that you're looking out, you're paying attention to what's going on out there and trying to uh, adjust things accordingly. Mm. You know, know, Roger mentioned Warren Buffett, and I saw the other day that Warren Buffett and others 
are trying to put together a whole different organization to combat healthcare costs. I'm just kind of wondering, do you at all fear people like Google, Amazon, getting into your space? And even though they're not going to offer vitality, they could offer something like it. But is that always a fear that somebody large like that is going to come in and just really disrupt it in terms of price and, hope, and I'm assuming value and so forth? And experience, yeah. and the customer experience yeah. as well. It's funny, um, when we think of our competition in the future, I, I don't get so concerned about the insurance companies, mm, but really? I do get concerned about a lot of these technology companies yeah. because of the the customer base that they have, first of all, is right. quite significant. But I, it's not, you know, our industry is not the easiest industry to get into. So I think that although it is a concern, it's also a potential opportunity as well. And that's where I, I look at it and try and look at it on the positive side in terms of our, can you partner with some of these organizations to be able to deliver something? And we're actually doing a couple of test uh, examples on some large PNC companies, just as an example, mm-hmm. to see about partnering with somebody to sell your product. And I think that is where an opportunity exists, right. not just a threat. So maybe just big, more, more bigger numbers, yeah. 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 So, so it's really hard to predict the future because whether it's a, a storm that comes out as a result of global warming. But one of the trends that seems to be out there, and, and what comes to mind is, is you see all these um, car companies or insurance companies, rather, uh, advertising insur- uh, insurance rates for cars. And then if you sort of look at it from that angle, and it, it must, I'm guessing it must be a pretty lucrative business for people to want to get into that. But if you look at what's happening, we've gone as a society from two cars to one car. We have Uber out mm. there. Uh, um, you know, driverless cars are really right around the corner. And as more people, particularly millennials at this point, sort of you know migrate towards that um, a segment, do you see or do you, do you have it in your mind, you know, in 20 years or 10 years, this is really going to shift? You really can't be in auto insurance at this point. Because I'm guessing if you're going to uh, insure driverless cars at that point, and that's the biggest part of your segment, there are going to be fewer accidents. So we're not in the PNC business, Mm -hmm. um, but certainly, you know, where technology is going in the future, I think it's going to change a lot of things. And I think PNC happens to be one of those areas. They talk about with the driverless cars that, you know, at some point, maybe it will wipe out the need for that insurance because the auto companies will offer the insurance with their car Mm -hmm. because they feel so strongly about the offering that they have. And that, you know, I've, I've heard that in, in the news, and that's just one of the things that I think could change drastically over the next 10 to 20 years. I think the one thing that's for sure is technology is moving at an unbelievably rapid pace. Yeah. And the, the movement we've seen over the last 10 years from technology and what we're going to see over the next five are going to be night and day, because mm-hmm. I think the next five, things are happening so quickly. You know, in our business... Um, use of advanced analytics, artificial intelligence um, into the underwriting process, you know, how we get information, it's all changing. And, you know, the the age of electronics and having all of this stuff auto underwrite right now, you know, the underwriting process can take 30, 40 days by the time you go through the whole thing. But to be able to get to the world, and we've already started it, where you're underwriting within 24 hours in certain situations or instantly underwriting, it's just changing. Technology is... uh, is going to have a significant impact on, on our businesses. Technology, digital marketing, wait, 
Hancock is doing right now that you weren't doing even five years ago? Well, the auto underwriting is, is a good example of that, where mm-hmm. we're auto adjudicating. And so we would have taken everybody through the same underwriting process, generally right. taking blood and urine from everyone. Um, that's not the case anymore. So, you know, and when you think about insurance, a lot of reasons why people don't have it is it's such an invasive experience just mm-hmm. underwriting mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so to be able to try and eliminate the blood and the urine is, is an important piece. How do you make that process easier? How do you go from asking 60 questions, every question you could come up with on a health perspective, down to much fewer questions. Well, we can do that with advanced analytics and using that Mm. to really help us understand, you know, what are the key questions that we need to ask and tying it back to the immense amount of uh, experience that we have. You know, we've been in this business for over 150 years. So the amount of experience we have and tying that and correlating it with advanced analytics really helps us predict the future as well. Mm -hmm. Very good. You know, also, I was thinking as well, like, you know, in your business, when you're trying to get new customers, you have customers that are customers already. And then, you know, the numbers I read are staggering of how many people, Roger, are un, uh, uninsured and, and don't have insurance at all. So in your marketing strategy, are you looking to take customers, let's say, away from your competitors? And or what's the balance of that versus unlocking other markets like those who are not insured are underinsured and bring them into the Hancock family? There's a huge opportunity in the underinsured market. And even the people that have insurance, in probably 40 to 50% of the cases, they don't have enough insurance. Mm. Um, they just don't recognize that they don't. A lot of people um, get their life insurance from their health benefits program, their right. group benefits program, right. mm-hmm. when, and they'll cover you up to two and a half times amount. your income. Right. Two and a half like times that. your income, yeah. and they think, okay, I've got my insurance, I'm covered. I'm all set. And yet, in reality, if you look at that individual circumstances, they probably are underinsured. Mm-hmm. So there is a significant marketplace not going to our competitors that is a real opportunity for us. And I think, again, it comes back to making it a better customer experience and having something unique like a Vitality offering to offer them that just intrigues them and entices them a little bit more. So so is the market opportunity underinsured or uninsured? Both. It's, it's both. I, I suspect with, with, with as people age, at, you know, at this point, they're realizing, gee, I, I, I thought I had more or, or I would have had more. And, and, and this they see as an opportunity, perhaps even getting into the annuities and, and, and whatnot. And that's why we're really trying to focus on helping people with their big financial decisions. You know, one of our missions is decisions made easier, lives made better. And a lot of people really don't know what they need. And right. they certainly don't wake right. up in the morning and say, hey, today I'm going to buy an insurance product. Right. That's on my top priority list. <laughs> Instead of that cruise. Well, well, well right. because it, you know what it is? It's too complicated. It is, it is very and, complicated. And, so, and then people so don't want to deal with it You're because right. it's complicated. Right. And then they just get frustrated with the whole thing. So I, sus- I, I suspect that if someone can make it really easy and really easy to understand you know, that, that sort of paves the way. And that's where we need to get to. And that's where I'm very focused in our strategy is rather than trying to push products out there, how do we help them with the, the challenges that they're facing? And they're usually questions, you know, what do I do when I retire? What do I do when I die? And being able to help them with those difficult decisions and helping them find those solutions. We know it's interesting, as we all know here in the room, marketing starts in the minds of the consumer. And a little while ago, I read a Bain study, because you mentioned about helping the, your customer. And the Bain study was very it was fascinating that Bain interviewed 300 CEOs and asked them, what percent do you feel of, you, of the CEOs, do you feel your company delivers an exceptional customer experience? 80% said yes. 
They then went to the customers of the same businesses. Mary, what number, what percent of the customers do you think agreed with the CEOs of the 300 companies? I'm guessing it was flipped. It was, hey, it was eight. Yeah. It was 8%. I was going to say 20. Right. I was going to say 20. Right. Okay. Well, you're being generous. So it was, it's a huge disconnect. Yeah. So I bring it up only because you mentioned about helping the customer. What do you do or your team? How do you stay intimately involved so this gap does not appear with John Hancock? And you really intimately know the behaviors, the sweet spots, how they tick, you know, their needs, their wants, desires. How do you stay close to them so this result of Bain is not replicated John Hancock, which is really, it's insane. Those numbers are insane. It is. Uh, it is crazy. Yeah. You know, one of our values is obsess about the customer. You know, we created new values about a year and a half ago. And um, with a new change in guard, you know, new CEO for Manulife, myself being new down here in the U.S. Right. So um, one of the things that we are very highly focused on is the customer experience. And there's no better way than talking to the customers, which I would say as insurance companies, we didn't always do that, mm. you know. We would design products that we felt would meet the customer's needs and then put those products in front of the customers. Again, they don't really know what it is that they need. Mm. And so that's the challenge. So how do you flip that conversation right. and how do you start having those conversations, which we've been doing a lot more, is getting the customers in the room and saying, okay, what is it that you're trying to solve? You have them physically in the room? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we, we're doing a lot of that. And so that is that whole concept of the human-centered design where you start with the customer and what is the customer trying to solve before you even start thinking about the product offering. And generally, what what are you learning from that? It's it's really interesting. There's a lot of customers really don't understand a lot about those, which is not surprising about the financial markets in mm -hmm. terms of how do you save and and what's important when you're passing away and you know in terms of what you need to do to help protect your family. They don't understand a lot of that, and their biggest comment is, "I just want someone to help me figure out what it is I need to do." Give me peace of mind. Yeah, and I, it's not. It's not about the products. I don't really want to understand the details of the products. I just want to understand, you know, how do I solve this problem that I have? So if we flip that conversation and start thinking about their problems and solving that, I think we're going to be in a much better spot than we than we have been historically. And we've hmm. already started that. Oh, okay. That's great. So, okay, um, Marianne, you're from Canada, eh? A. Oh, did I say that? I, can, I didn't say that, did I? I, I She's can, in the wild part of the country. I, I just want you to know, I can say that yeah. because my son-in-law is Canadian, so I, I, I can do that. And I'm pretty sure I didn't say A. <laughs> but you can now. And, and um, so I'm curious, so you came down from Canada. Corporately, what differences do you see between, you know, Canada and the U.S.? Uh, interesting. Um, so I started in Canada came down to the U.S. for five years, went back to Canada. That's when I saw the biggest aha, uh, uh -huh, shall uh -huh. I say, <laughs> when I came back to Canada. And because in the U.S., I just, I just found that the people were, you know, got excited about a lot of things really quickly and kind of moved on. If, if something wasn't the way they wanted it, that's fine. Okay, it's not going that way. Here, let's go down the path and away we go. Whereas Canadians are a bit more conservative. And I didn't actually realize that being Canadian. I am a Canadian. So I didn't realize that until I went back to Canada. I said, okay, come on, we're going to head down this path. And everyone's going, well, wait a minute. You know, have you thought about this? And have you thought about that? And then, no, no, let's get going. Let's get going. And, and that was the biggest difference I found is that there's a lot more conservatism and questioning, should we really do that? What are the risks of doing that? Versus in the U.S., it was, okay, let's get going. Um, so that was the biggest So when difference. John Hank was courting you, they probably took you to Fenway Park 
and you sat there and you saw the joy hand kind of sign and you went, that's it, I'm in. <laughs> when, when they were recording me, it's actually a funny story. So since you brought it up, yeah. I thought I would share it. Sure. I have uh, four kids. Yeah. And so the four kids went back in 2008. One was going into his uh, senior year of high school. One was going into her, uh, get this right, because I am Canadian. I always, she was going into grade 10. <laughs> she was going into grade 10. One was going into grade 8 and one was going into grade 3. And so you can just imagine how hard it especially the senior in, in high school, moving them at, at those ages. So they brought me down and the family to Boston to see. And of course, my my boss that was, uh, my new boss that I was about to get knew what to do. He had hockey tickets. He had yeah. baseball tickets. He had everything, everything. <laughs> to entice the boys and get them all excited. Right. And by the time the weekend finished, they said, you know, we still don't want to move, but if we had to move anywhere, I'd want to move here. <laughs> uh, okay, Mary, we have something we're going to give you sort of an abbreviated lightning round here, okay? We, we sometimes like to ask our guests. Now, um, I, I'm going to ask you a question now, um, and I'm, I'm going to test your Canadianness. Oh, no. Okay. Which actor is not Canadian? Mike Myers, was Tom Hanks, or Donald Sutherland? Oh, Ooh, it's a, that's a, that's I don't want any imposters here, you know. So. Uh, I think I know. Mike Myers is. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm this struggling is like, this is like between the two. <laughs> yeah, no help. No help. No help. Go ahead. I, I'm struggling between those two. I'm gonna say. Uh, I'm gonna say Tom Hanks. You're right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yes, Donald Sutherland is. The only reason I know this yeah. once I, I, I met him in the restaurant. His father was a fisherman uh, out of Nova Scotia. Really? Yes, yes. Wow. Absolutely. I've always had a, a, a good thoughts about Don Sutherland. Anyway. I, did, I didn't know that he wasn't, but I thought if Tom Hanks was Canadian, I would have known that for sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Okay, you have good reasoning powers. Now, tell us one thing that we don't know about Marianne. I like to fish. You like to fish? Yeah. All right. See, see, it's Roger. A, it's a, it's a, if it doesn't work out a hand it, you got a, her. It's a Canadian theme. If you can fish we, shrimp, like he's going to hire you. <laughs> okay. All right. Favorite hockey team? Oh, I don't think I can answer that see, question. Yeah, she's too thoughtful. She's too thoughtful. You know, I you see, if there was a guy there, he, they would okay, have answered okay. the Maple Leafs right away, and I would have known. That, well, that is the answer. That's why I hesitated. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, you know, but if Toronto, and frequently they do get knocked out, I'm always rooting for the Bruins right behind. But I have to admit, we are diehard Toronto fans. And one of these days, they will actually win that Stanley Cup. I just don't know when. It was back in 61, I think, was the last time. What, what one piece of advice would you give your 25-year-old self? My 25-year-old self, I would say um, take, take risks. You know, I, I started taking risks later on in my career. I kind of wish I took them earlier as well and not being afraid to take a risk. I think that's where you get the most benefit is putting yourself out there and taking a chance. Sometimes, especially women, can be overly cautious. And so I would say just put yourself out there and, and yeah. take a risk and make sure people know what it is that you want. Mm -hmm. um, because 
a woman with four ch- children, people would make decisions for me, make assumptions that, you know, I wouldn't move, for instance, from, they would assume I wouldn't move yeah. from Toronto down to Boston. So if you're not careful, were, people were you, will make those assumptions. Were you ever told that when you said, told people you're going to four children, did anybody say to you, you're going to four children, forget about it, your career is never going to take off, right? <laughs> and because a lot of times you hear from women saying, once you keep having a family, it's going to affect your career. Were you ever told that? Absolutely. I was yeah. told that after I had my second child, really? that um, that I, surely I understood that having two children, that would be the most I would be able to have. Mm. I think I was pregnant three months later, so <laughs> I obviously didn't listen. All right. Larry, do you, do, you, you don't have any more serious questions, do you? I just have okay. one more serious question. Oh, gosh. He asked me, right? I have a wrap-up question, but it's okay, not serious. No, this, this is ahead. not wrap-up at all, Roger. This is not wrap-up. No, mine's not wrap-up. Yours is wrap-up. Right? Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> America runs on Duncan. What does is, what is Marianne run on? Um, I always run on Tim Hortons, I hate to say, but Ooh, now Tim, I, uh, actually right. I run on tea. Tea. Yes. Tea. I'm, oh, I've wow. never, never drank a cup of coffee in my life, actually. Really? Yes. I only really? drink tea. And that's why I liked Tim Hortons, because they steeped their tea. Okay. Right. And, and what team did Tim Hortons play for? Oh, great. I don't know. I, should know I don't know either. I don't I, <laughs> all right. Just one so last you know, question. We are a big hockey family. Founded <laughs> in Canada. One, one, one last question. All right. This is the wrap-up question. Last thing we'll ask you, Miriam. The guess who or Gordon Lightfoot? In terms of Canadians? Gordon, no. Gordon which Lightfoot. one you like. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> They're both Canadian. Uh, I think Gordon Lightfoot. Okay, we have a sense of you, uh, Miriam. Thank you. <laughs> My husband's going to be very disappointed I did not answer the Tim, Tim Hortons question. But uh, we're a hockey family, so that's why he'll be very disappointed in me. Uh, that, that, that was great. Thanks very much, Miriam. We really enjoyed having you on Name Brands. Thanks today. for having me. got some me. good insights. Remember to subscribe to Name Brands on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. We're at Name Brands Pod on Twitter or on Facebook at Name Brands Podcast. That's it for us. We'll be back to talk to you again next Wednesday. Wednesday.